Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and it's a warm welcome back to the editor and creator of Comic Scene magazine, the I Love Comics digital convention and the new History of Comics series, uh, Tony Foster. Welcome back to the book club, Tony. Hi, Eamon. It's nice to be here. Well, it's very good of you to give up your time. We've got, you've been a very busy chap, so we've got lots to talk about at the end with uh, the developments of comic scene and the club and the history of comics. But before we do that, I've sort of slightly persuaded you to do one of my favourite books. What's the um, the book club choice for today? Uh, it's Saga of the Swamp Thing. And I've got the absolute issue that I've just read, so... It's all up to date and uh, all, all, all the latest issues that are in that. Fantastic. So I, I've got in front of me the uh, book one, the Alan Moore Saga of the Swamp thing. Uh, it was a 2009 hardback, but more recently, as you say, there's been two absolute editions. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just mention creators. Obviously, Alan Moore, the artist Stephen Bissett, John Tottleburn, colorist Tatiana Wood, Dan Day, some art in there as well. John Costanza did all the lettering. And editors, quite a famous pair. Starts with Len Wein and then goes on to be Karen Berger, of course. Um, So, Tony, Swamp Thing, perhaps unusual for a slightly British-centric podcast, but give us a quick potted history of the Swamp Thing character um, and bringing us up to Alan Moore's run. Well, you mentioned Len Vine there, and he, he and Bernie Wrightson um, created the character in 1971. I think he appeared for the first time in House of Secrets in 90, uh, issue 92. And there was a, a short-run uh, series of about 24 issues, which ran from about 1972 to 1976. The character was then forgotten until... Uh, it was relaunched in 1982 to tie in with a Wes Craven uh, movie, which uh, some of your listeners may have seen. And um, there was a decision to uh, uh, bring the uh, title back. And then what happened is Len gave a certain person a call when Martin Pascoe was ending his run on the title. Uh, and he gave Alan Moore a call and, and and he thought that it was uh, David Lloyd who'd obviously been working with him on things like V for Vendetta winding him up uh, but uh, <laughs> it's a lovely story a isn't it to, yeah they got a chance to talk and um and Alan was asked if he would be interested in taking on Swamp Thing Yes, you can imagine Alan Moore, you know, in Northampton, uh, getting a phone call from America that says, you know, it's Len Wein here to talk to you about a new uh, taking over a title. And uh, Alan Moore saying, yes, come on, David, stop messing around. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it it sounds like a really odd story now. But obviously, uh, in in 1984, Alan Moore was writing things like Dior and Quinch and uh, Halo Jones and and his US career hadn't hadn't really taken off and I, and I suppose it hadn't you know Watchmen was just a, a figment of his imagination at that point so yeah I mean you can imagine getting a call from the the states was a, was probably a bit of a shock Absolutely. but at least we know that David Lloyd does a really good American accent obviously <laughs> Things the comic scene uh, in in the 1984 or in 1983 I guess this would have been wouldn't it yeah. And do you remember buying this um, off the shelf back in the 80s, Tony? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, it was a it was a big a big thing. I mean, at that time, I was probably reading uh, 2000 AD, like most people. Uh, but I was obviously interested in in US comics, and it was a big thing that Alan Moore was about to write uh, Swamp Thing. And I do remember again uh, again going down to the comic shop and, and buying those first first issues and, and putting onto my standing order at the time. So yeah, I do I do remember it. I remember it being quite excited about it as well. It was a very exciting uh, book, wasn't it? It was, um, I guess what they would say, it was a hot book, wasn't it? Everybody was buying it and talking about it. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I think, as I mentioned, Martin Pascoe was writing the, the, the book at the time and, and and either decided he was going to leave it or was asked to leave it. And um, the uh, character was in a bit of the doldrums. I think it was only selling about 17,000 copies at the time. So to have a, a UK writer who was already regarded as probably one of the, the hottest comic writers ever at that point, uh, taking on a, a character like Swamp Thing, was it was a big thing. I mean, there was a few British creators who were, I think, already in the states at the time. Brian Brian Bolland probably was, and, and Dave Gibbons. But to actually have a, a writer and, and a writer that everybody regarded as as a uh, being exceptional was 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 a really exciting thing to see on an American comic book. Um, it was probably the start of the sort of UK invasion into 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 America. Uh, so it was it was a big big thing at the time. Yes, I mean the British invasion sort of starts with this book, doesn't it? Saga of the Swamp Thing and Alan Moore taking it over. Yeah, and you know he takes a run of the mill character and um, and completely flips it on its head as you would expect with that british imagination that doesn't lend itself to sort of superheroes uh, as such and uh, and i'm presented as with with the build-up from issue 20 uh with with hardly any fanfare of the anatomy lesson yes the extraordinary issue the anatomy lesson probably the most famous swamp thing issue of all time i would guess and maybe, you know, apart from, I suppose, Bernie Wrightson and Len Wein's original issue one. Um, mm. So this was, he. I mean, he'd sort of possibly done it a little bit with characters like Marvel Man and, Cap- and Captain Britain. But this was Alan Moore almost literally tearing a character apart and rebuilding them and rebuilding the backstory. It was an extraordinary thing to do at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and and certainly rebuilding it is exactly what 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 he did. You know, you, you, you in some ways it had been a, a fugitive type story where where Alec Holland, who was the the character who who changed into the Swamp Thing, was trying to find some form of solution, I guess, to to reverting back to the the person he thought he was. And it, as you say, it comple- he completely flipped it on his head with the, the the story i mean i i don't i'd imagine that most people who are listening to this have either either read it or heard the story that you know um he um, he shows that it, actually the swamp thing isn't alec holland at all he was just he's alec holland is dead he was dead when the explosion hit him and he just ran into the swamp and it was the the root system soaking up the formula that that just picks on the consciousness of a person who doesn't quite know he's dead yet, uh, and then and then moulds into into this sort of uh, uh, mossy, messy uh, creature. Uh, uh, and so he isn't Alec Holland at all. He is just a swamp thing who just has 
the consciousness of Alec Holland and, and the whole run initially of what Alan Moore was trying to do. As you say, he did it with Marvel Man, he did it with Captain Britain, was just completely changing people's perception of of what the Swamp Thing was, as well as the character realising that was the case as well for him too. And, of course, he had Bissett and Tottleburn doing the art and they produced um, this, as you say, very shaggy, moss-like, real plant creature instead of the slightly smooth-skinned version we'd seen before, which almost began to look a little bit like the guy in the suit from the movies. Uh, it's you know that the artwork was a huge part of the success. It wasn't just Alan Moore, was it? It was the you know extraordinary artwork that went with it. Well, I think Alan Moore's been very lucky in his career that 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 the artists that he's worked with actually define the stories uh, that he's putting together. Um, it's 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 not usual. I don't I, I don't think uh, you look at some of the creators like uh, Mark Miller or, or, or Grant Morrison, and nobody. There are a few titles that they did where people equate the books with both the writer and the artist. But many of Alan Moore's books were like that. And, of course, as you say, Steve, Steve Bissett and, and, and John Tottenham, who were from the, both from the Cubit uh, school, um, had been drawing the character, um, I think, from about issue 16. And uh, it was kind of going through the motions a little bit. But they, they, they had a, a great style in them a great idea of what horror should actually look like and you're right the the, it it, it, it moved into a different stratosphere when Alan Moore came on board and he engaged with the writers as much as he could as well which I don't think was happening uh, prior to his run taking on some of their ideas that they suggested they started to enjoy drawing Swamp Thing and a lot of the imagery, a lot of how the pages looked, a lot of how the structure looked, a lot of how the everything that came with the book uh, changed because the writers and the the writer and the and the artists were working together, and they were they were thousands of miles apart. I don't, I'm not even sure they even met. Uh, very early on when when they were doing the book and they created something that was was quite exceptional because you're you're right it wasn't just about the writing it was about the image of the look and look of the book and I think it was around about issue 25 that uh, they got rid of the uh, previous cover artist as well so they were designing the whole the whole concept of the book and and that was quite exciting and and and, and it showed with the readers because they went from something like 17,000 uh, copies to 100,000 copies uh, being sold on a monthly basis. And those transatlantic phone calls back in 1983-1984 between Alan Moore and his artists and his editors, they must have been quite expensive at the time as well. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like they could... Uh, it was probably quite a good idea that they couldn't FaceTime each other. It might have scared them both off. <laughs> Yes, and I've seen interviews with Alan Moore from the time when he he talked about being a method writer and he jokes about uh, lying in a bath full of mud for a week to try and get the Swamp Thing vibe. Um, You know, it was some of the interviews from that time, he's great fun actually listening to him. He was, um, he's still a great raconteur, but at the time he was just hilarious as well. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a true story. If he's just if he's just making it up. Actually, it's really interesting when you when you, you talk about the 
the smell. I mean, the, obviously, the absolute issue if you if, if people have got it, it's got this very unusual cover on it, and it and it smells. So when you're reading it, uh, it, it feels like you're in a swamp. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's got quite, that sort of mossy cover, hasn't it? Yeah, it does, and and it, and it has that smell, and 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 it, it it just adds to the whole concept of of, of reading this book for the first time. In well, for me. I suppose it's the first time in, in over 30 years that I've actually sat down and read it again. Um, so, Tony, give us a flavour. After the extraordinary issue of the anatomy lesson, which <clears throat> recreates the character, I mean, you mentioned he's not Alec Holland, and there's a couple of moments later in the run where he sort of comes up against or comes up uh, with the ghost of Alec Holland, which I always thought were particularly poignant and emotional moments. Mm-hmm. But give us a flavour of what sort of stories that Moore, Bissett and Tottleburn um, and the rest of the team then went on to tell. Well, um, obviously you had the, the what was the Jason Woodrow storyline and the, the Sunderland Corporation storyline, which made up the anatomy lesson. And then um, I think at the time... Moore had two very young children, I think he said at the time. And so he tried to create kind of stories that would uh, that weren't, I suppose, traditional horror in the sense of sort of big authors at the time like Stephen King and, and, and Clive Barker. But it, it was it was rooted, if you, if you pardon the pun, in sort of everyday horror. So um, it was it was stories with sort of real human resonance uh, which gave a feeling of genuine unease. So there was stories in there of, of drug use and gun control and racism and pollution. So it was all it was all it was all in there in terms of of, of that. And he led up to a story um, which was essentially about um, Abigail Cable um, going to hell, and the uh, Swamp Thing Annual at the time told the story about how he, he managed to uh, save her. And that included some of the sort of classic horror, horror uh, uh, comics uh, characters like the Demon and the Phantom Stranger and Dead Man. And that particular uh, storyline started when Karen Berger asked if he would uh, look, if Alan Moe would look a little bit more into the relationship between Abigail Cable and 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 Swamp Thing uh, before they went on to some of the more sort of human horror stories, if you like. And, and um, that was round about issue 29, I think it was. Um, Love and Death, it was called. It was, uh, it, and it had the sort of the monkey demon story in. And if you've ever read... Uh, issue. If you're ever going, ever going to just read an issue of Swamp Thing, um, I mean, a lot of people do talk about the anatomy lesson, but I think reading issue, I think it's number uh, 29, is is a great story to to read um, because that 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 is that is the kind of start of that love and death sort of arc, if you like, um, and it caused a few uh, problems for the comics code authority of uh, the US at the time because it was it was it was slightly uh, edging into pure classic horror and it's it, it's it's a it's a great story to, to to read i mean it's not my my favorite um swamp thing story i think my favorite one of the series was, was sort of issue 25 
which I think is just a really uh, well-written uh, comic book. Uh, it was finally when Moore got into his stride to do it in the direction that he he wanted. And there's a lot of the kind of more humor in that particular story, as well as the horror element of it. And um, but um, yeah, it, it explored many uh, different. Uh, went into all kind of different areas throughout the the, the, the time, and even managed to uh, feature, I think, the JLA in a way, um, the Justice League America in a way, in, in one of the stories. And and I know that I think it was Bissett was very uncomfortable with featuring superheroes in it and, and crossing into the superhero world away from the kind of House of Secrets type of horror comics. But they talked about it and it worked quite well in the way it was presented and probably had shades of uh, how Moore was going to deal with superheroes beyond the run of Swamp Thing as well. Uh, and you, you start to see it in, in these particular, particular books. And then, of course, it, it, it goes on um, once that storyline was, was finished and there was a few um, sort of single stories. You mentioned one about... Alec Holland's ghost and I think Pog was a was another one which kind of heart back to the kind of funny comics of of in the US that there's a there's a story which starts to uh, go on into and and this I think this is explored more in the second absolute volume where it goes on to uh, uh, about the sort of destruction of, of the world but uh, we get introduced to um, a, a fellow who looks a little bit like Sting and, and speaks in a kind of uh, Newcastle accent, I think. And that's, of course, where we first see John Constantine, Hellblazer, within the storyline. So you're not just looking at the creation of just one uh, landmark series of comics about a character, but you're also being introduced to a, a, a brand new character to the DC universe who obviously makes his impact uh, throughout the, the stories as much as Moore did when he came to writing comics. It's extraordinary how much is in uh, Swamp Thing. I mean, as you've said, you've got these uh, sort of DC supernatural characters. You've mentioned Jack Kirby's Demon was brought back. Yeah. You've got Cain and Abel who had hosted horror titles. And it becomes that sort of Vertigo thing that Vertigo would become sort of famous for, that Neil Gaiman would run with in Sandman where it's the supernatural characters from DC. But he's also got that slightly, as you described it, that slight sort of Pat Mills distrust of the superheroes, the JLA. And then to introduce John Constantine, this is where he starts. It's, it's just remarkable how much he's packed in. Because the absolute edition I've got here is, is the first 14 issues. And in those 14 issues, it's extraordinary how much they get in there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and if can you imagine what this was like reading it at the time, month in, month out? Uh, uh, it, you were just being completely battered with quite amazing storylines, and if you if you if you can imagine at the same time uh, with with more, you were getting the stuff that was appearing in 2000 AD, and then you were getting little nuggets of of. Uh, 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 ideas of stories that he was going to explore as well it was just such an exciting time to to read uh, what he was actually doing and um swamp thing is is it you know a lot of people uh, tend to ignore swamp thing because of of things like watchmen that came uh, later and and you know are still bestsellers today and along with the killing joke and 
those two books in particular. But Swamp Thing is, for me, is still remains probably one of the best things that that Moore ever uh, ever ever wrote. And you know, I'm sure if he he looks at it, he might see uh, warts and all. But for the reader, even today, I think if you read it, you just go, oh, "That's mind blowing." It it's really stands up um in you know in in the 21st century in terms of um, in terms of comic book stories and and uh yeah it's quite an extraordinary extraordinary run and it becomes it was the saga of the swamp thing and it became just plain swamp thing on the ti- on the covers but of course th- it also started to feature that tagline of sophisticated suspense and the writing um, you know, as you say, you can read this now, and it's still terrific writing, terrific stories, very sophisticated, very relevant still. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what that's what struck me when I, I reread it, and I've only reread it in the last year. Is how relevant the stories still seem. You know, the the issues are still here, um, and on the face of it, at the time, uh, as you as you know. We, we didn't have social media. We didn't have access to news as much as we possibly have just now. So, uh, I, 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 and you all know that probably Moore was quite well read. He was probably re- reading newspapers, uh, literature from, from the States. And he was picking on stories, I suppose, in the same way that John Wagner used to take stories and and for Judge Dredd and just put them in the future and, and flip them a little bit about what, what, what could be happening now that might happen in the future. He was taking relevant issues and, and, and putting that sort of human resonance horror element to it. And it's like an undercurrent of Americana, but that has really come to the fore in the last sort of four or five years. Again, it's, it's reared its ugly head and you can see, and, and, and that's why the stories still remain so, so relevant. And you've mentioned a couple of extraordinary issues, 25, which starts the uh, the Jack Kirby demon run with Jason Blood, his alter ego. And as you say, it's a, it's, it's a very sort of amusing introduction, but also so well written, and it's a great issue. And then 29, of course, as you've said, they lose the Comic Code Authority stamp because <laughs> the horror of what happens to Abigail Cable in that issue, very human and real horror. I mean, it's an issue that's got zombies and sort of demons in it, but it's <laughs> the sort of the absolute, as I say, very human nature of what happens to Abigail Cable. It's quite. It was a scary book, actually, wasn't it? It was quite. You know, it was. We don't. We don't often talk about being scared by comics, but I always found this quite horrific. Yeah, you 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 have this this image of Abigail having uh, she's completely sort of naked, having trying to to scrape off this horror that she feels on her on her skin and that's what sets up the the beginning of the story and you just go well what could possibly have happened that you know has created this horror around her and then there's the whole situation because it's also rooted in young children in the story uh, and and the, the, around something as simple as things as a spelling and and the and the monkey king it it it, it is quite a a, a, a a scary story and and I can't really remember at the time if we if we knew the comics code was was questioning that particular issue or not i know that bissett and Totleben were, were and, and more as well were very adamant at that point that um 
they they wanted to put the the story out uh, as it was and Karen Berger backed her writers on that and and as you say it 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 really started a sea shift in how people looked at comics at that point with uh, I mean it lost the comics code authority authority it's, it's, it's a bit strange because I thought it lost it for that issue but it's actually still on the uh, on the cover in in the book it loses the comic code authority uh, stamp round about issue 30 and and then and then it doesn't run it at all so that they have the freedom to go off and still explore and do and write and uh, whatever story they they want and what's beautiful about uh, Moore and 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 Bissett and Totleman's run is that you know they could have gone in any direction they could have made it really extreme horror but it's quite restrained uh, and that's what makes it even stronger so it it doesn't feel like it's a an extreme adult book you know there isn't that much in terms of swearing there you know there is horror there but it, it's not gratuitous in terms of how it you know in terms of its violence it's it's really subdued uh horror that makes the reader not only read it and 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 feel the horror but you you imagine it as well so it's not it's it, it's really quite subtle uh, and that's what makes it stronger i think so, and as you said, it, I think, I mean, this is round about now, we're going into 1984-85, and it was the start of the Vertigo line. Um, you know, there were, there were other titles that followed on from here, like Animal Man and things like that. But uh, the actual branding of this kind of uh, mature uh, comic book um, largely uh, influenced by... A British writers and artists who 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 brought a different sensibility to the American comic industry. Uh, it was the start of, of you know Vertigo and 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 what was to come come next. And it was a very very strong and exciting time. And it's got a it's a book that really has although it's you know it's famous for being Alan Moore and famous for the mm. artists, but Karen Berger's stamp on it is quite. Uh, notable, um, not least, as you say, for backing her creators when they ran into trouble with uh, the Comics Code Authority. But also, I know from interviews with both uh, Karen and with Alan Moore that, for instance, Steve Bissett would take five weeks to draw a four-weekly comic, as it were, so they would have fill-in issues. And Karen Berger had a sort of I guess, you know, a great big sort of calendar working out where issues would go and where she would need fill-in stories from Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. I know, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I think, one, it was either the Pog issue or the burial issue with Sean McManus on art that Alan Moore mm-hmm. wrote the script in about three days, I think. Yeah, well, in, in, indeed. I think, he, I think he also wrote the, um, there was a story called Nuke Face, which I think appears in the second volume, Absolute Volume. It does, And yeah. that, I think, was written and drawn before Love and Death, uh, which is probably the most famous arc uh, that, that we've been talking about. And I think that story was written in a, in a matter of days and, and, and more like that. He liked the idea of... Uh, being given a, a deadline and you know having to 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 put something together really really quickly, um, uh, but yeah, I mean the, the the quality of the artwork wasn't forsaken uh, uh, in the way that uh, uh, 
so Karen Berger, as you say, she she must have had uh, sort of an amazing wall of uh, right. Okay, we're going to get this then and this then and and that there and you know um, and it, and and it's trembling. At that time, it was it was unheard of to to wait on a comic book. Uh, I remember. I think it was uh, Camelot three thousand was came out and the run started and it was the it was the first time that a book hadn't followed uh Bolin took so long on some of the art i think that it didn't appear for months like between issues towards the end and that was unheard of you know so to be able to um have someone like more writing quality stories and, and getting a, another artist to draw that and it not feel like it was chopping and changing as well it all kind of moved together was was a was a was an amazing feat uh, from an editor's perspective yes and the, the and the whole whole run is 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 great you've you've got Tatana's woods uh, coloring in it which had that kind of it just fitted so well in those kind of muddy uh, rough uh, US comic um, uh, pages and I think it's John Constanzo was it was doing the lettering and things like that. It all just came together really, really well. Yeah, fantastic. And while we're talking about the Absolute Edition, I'll mention two other artist names that I missed out. Ron Randall and Alfredo Alcala um, help out on filling issues as well. Um, but it's in a way, it's sort of Bissett and Tottleburn who are sort of most famous from this run, aren't they? And they, yeah. they're they sort of dripping, muck-encrusted, uh, mossy swamp thing, but also all the horror characters as well. It's just terrific. What did you think, while we're talking about the Absolute Edition, you know, sacrifices had to be made and the the paper in the Absolute Edition, of course, is very high-quality, glossy paper. And mm-hmm. so... They made the decision to recolor the artwork by Steve Olive. What did you make of the changes in the, in the coloring? Well, I think it, it, it is true. It's a different format, and um, in some ways, I, I didn't have a problem with it. I know some people have. Perhaps it just seemed. Uh, I, I think the run was so classic in people's memories that to deviate away from it at all was 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 difficult for some people but i i found it 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 didn't really spoil my enjoyment of the book i mean there are some pages in my edition which the coloring is actually quite faded uh, and i think that's a printing issue more than a than a recoloring issue so um but it you know it is quite bright at points and and you know you, you don't feel like you're reading that sort of 32 page uh rough comic from way back when and and i remember people talking about you know when things started to be printed on baxter paper and you know you start to do a lot more um uh comics on on more quality there was always a question about coloring and how it looked and how it felt so and i think it's the same with any new format is that there's always a little bit of controversy there but for me it doesn't spoil the enjoyment of the books at all okay so um as I said, the Absolute Edition contains the first 14 or 15 issues, I guess, of the more beset Tottleman run, plus there's other artists. Um, let's give you all the original artwork to choose from, including the covers from this era. What, is there a particular piece of Swamp Thing art that you would love to own yourself if uh, money was no object, Tony? 
Well, I think we, we, we've talked on the last, uh, I think I, the reason you've, you've given me Swamp Thing this time is because I, I talked about the, I think, the Rite of Spring last time. You did, um, that's right, yes. And I, and, I, and I nabbed that particular cover at the time. And that's another classic issue that we, I think it's at the end of this first absolute book. It the, is, uh, yeah, right, issue right 34. Spring, uh, yeah, yeah, where we explore a little bit of uh, sex between Abby and, 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 and Swamp Thing, which... If uh, I'm surprised that 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 I'm not surprised that it doesn't have the comic code on it in, in in that particular particular issue, but for me, I think my, one of my favourite issues of Swamp Thing was issue 25, which is a is a great great story, and the cover of that, I think that's the first cover, um, which kind of stamps uh, the the mark on this is the new the new run of Swamp Thing. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great change to the, to the logo. It's got Swamp Thing. It's got Abby on it. It's, it's just a brilliant, brilliant cover. And I think I would probably go for that. And actually I'd, I'd love to own some of the whole of that story. It's, it, it's a great, it's a great story issue 25. It's got, a it's very, it has a kind of, film quality to it it's 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 kind of uh brings various strands that have been used used today in you know films and tv and things like that appearing in a comic book again it was like one of the first times it seems to have been done where he's referring to things that are about to happen in a timeline that happen and then uh very early in the story and they happen later on in the stories it's really it's really quite clever and enjoyable and and humorous um but yeah i would go for issue 25 cover i think excellent so as you're, you're quite right in the grail page gallery you already have the cover for issue 34 so we've given you now the cover of issue 25 saga of the swamp thing by Bissett and tottleburn and it is just gorgeous and then anything from that issue would be fantastic as well what an exciting time to be buying comics off the shelf that was yeah, I mean, you wonder, has it ever been better than that? I mean, you, even today, uh, it was always amazing. I think I told you the last time that, you know, I was out away from comics for a while. And when you came back, the, the, the comics that were produced around that time, uh, from about 1983 to 1991, are still the comics that people are reading today in collected editions. They're, you know, they're still hitting the bestseller lists. And to be living through that uh, and reading that at the time, it, it really did feel like a, a sea shift in, 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 in comics and, and the acceptance of comics. And, and now we see comics on bookshelves, in bookshops, and, you know, we don't think it's unusual. Uh, and, and it's not just, it's not a superhero comics, it's manga and it's, it's, it's comics about life, uh, people's lives, dealing with issues and stuff. So, you know, it was a real, that was the time when then that just opened up the doors 20, 30 years later for all those kind of comic books that we see today. Fantastic stuff. So um, if you've never tackled the saga of the Swamp Thing, the more beset Tottleburn run, then these these books, there's the smaller hardback, which will cost you about £12 for the first volume, or there are now two absolute editions, which are going to be at least... I think they're about £50 for the first one, even more for the second one, but they are still available, and they're gorgeous, gorgeous things, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think the first one, I mean, I was able to pick the second one up for about £19 uh, from a deal on uh, eBay, I think. 
and uh, but the first one that seems to be going for anything from 50 pounds upwards if you've not got a copy of it but however you get the story just get out there and, and, and grab it and of course digitally as well it is available and yeah. they are such great stories such great issues um yeah what a joy it was to be alive in that dawn and yeah. buying these comics off the shelf yeah very much so Splendid. Well worth visiting the uh, comic shop, that's for sure. It was, yes, to make sure you got your copy of Swamp Thing every month. Uh, yeah. It was, as we say, a hot book. It was. It was It, it was a hot book. It was as hot as it, as it could be, I think. So, Tony, it's Guest Projects time. Last time you were telling us all about Comic Scene magazine. It's undergone mm-hmm. a transformation. Tell us a little bit, first of all, perhaps about the history of Comics Project. Yeah, so um, obviously we were doing Comic Scene and... You know, the nature of these kind of magazines in, in the history of comics is, is they don't last particularly long time. And it was it was going OK. Um, and um, indeed, there were there was an interest starting to come from comic shops in the US as well uh, on the title. And then, of course, COVID hit and sales plummeted uh, because shops were closing. Comic shops are closing. And that whole idea of producing a, a monthly magazine and, and the cost relating to it just wasn't feasible anymore. So, but what was also interesting is that at the time is I, I started to get a sense that um, a lot more people were thinking of starting to do their own sort of comic scene style magazine. Some people were sort of revisiting old titles. Uh, some people were doing some brand new titles um, and, you know, that's quite exciting and, and I, I'll probably buy most of them because I was always interested in that side of, of, of the comic industry. But it, it got me thinking, how, how could I do something that was like comic scene and perhaps not make the, and perhaps take on some of the, the comments about, what people thought was lacking in 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 the in the um, the magazine, and make it slightly different and, and an approach that had, to my mind, had never been done before. So, I came up with the idea for the the history of comics, which is essentially a project that's attempting to feature a year in comics in each book, and trying to do maybe up to 100, 100 years worth. So from 1930 to 2030, so even history that hasn't hasn't happened yet. Uh, so the idea behind is that each book, uh, and it's a little bit more high quality than the comic scene magazine, uh, could would feature a year in comics. And we would launch it on Kickstarter because I was finding that uh, trying to get into shops and, and uh, you were losing somewhere in the region of you know 50% of your your cover sales but you were also having to print over print to get the distribution that you needed so you were losing funds that way so i wanted to do a kickstarter so you knew exactly how many copies you could print and because um postal charges are so high it was quite good to do it in uh rather than just do one book perhaps do four books and put them in a sort of binder so that people could binge read those particular four years. And the four years aren't, aren't in uh, order. You know, I think the first four books covered 1984, 
1977, 1950, and 1986. So, uh, you know, it, it would appeal to all sorts of different age groups. And the beauty of it is that not only can you collect them, but these particular books don't really get dated. They just refer to that particular particular year. So you can pick them up at any time. You can pick them up now or you can pick them up in five years' time or in ten years' time. So we didn't have to, you know, try and um, offer them for half price or quarter of a price in the future. They, were just, they could just be as they are. And um, so, yeah, that was kind of the approach. And then and obviously it could be a gift for somebody if they're a fan of comics and they were born in 1991 or 1976. They could buy that particular year and, uh, and, 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 and read what was happening in comics then. So that's kind of we just wanted to do something uh, different that hadn't been done before in terms of presenting comic history to people. And, and I think we, we've picked on something that, that hasn't been done before. And I've got a copy of History of Comics 1984 in front of me now, and mm-hmm. I can see, uh, if I mention some of the people you've got writing articles for you, Richard Bruton, Richard Sheaf, who's been on this podcast and, of course, extremely mm-hmm. knowledgeable about British comics, Barry Tomlinson's in there, um, Holly Roberts, and, of course, then you've got an article for 1984, Swamp Thing, by Peter Gouldson, uh, which is yeah. exactly the sort of stuff we've been talking about that, you know... Yeah when Alan Moore revolutionised American comics. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. What is the best way for people to get involved? Is it the Kickstarters? Yeah, so it will rely on a Kickstarter being successful, and we've got one live as we speak now for the next four books. So um, that's that's a, a great way of, of, of getting on, on board. And, and the reason we wanted to keep, keep doing Kickstarters is because it, it, it strikes me as a really good way of uh, getting the message out, not just to people in the UK, but uh, to the US as well. Because, the in fact, the sales of the history of comics, the first Kickstarter was about 50-50 to the US and to, to the UK. But we also have an opportunity to join what we're calling the Comic Club. So uh, you pay, uh, I think it's £10 a month, uh, and you also get your history of comics when they're, when they're released uh, uh, every sort of, uh, f- every four months. But you also get access to, um, of course, the history of comics is huge, and you could never really just cover it in one book so we are providing some online material as well um that includes links to uh people who've already done uh, articles on on comics so you can find them a lot easier uh, or people who have just wanted to submit an article because they couldn't feature in the book um or uh and 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 the idea is that that will will grow and grow um, uh, year on year as well as a, as a resource for people when it comes to uh, the history of comics. And, and in, the, in the books themselves, you know, we have some of the original comic scene writers who, who, who wanted to do things, but we've, we've attracted some other writers as well uh, from the States, some academics from the States and the UK. Um, so there's a whole different, uh, or, or we, we ask the creators, as you said, Barry, Tom, Linson to talk about Scream, and we've got an interview with uh, Ian Gibson, I think, within within the 1984 one. So we want to get the, 
the sort of interviews or, or getting the creators to, to write about those specific things that they want to write about. I think in one issue, I think it's the 1977, John Wagner, we asked him if he wanted to write about uh, Judge Dredd and he said he didn't want to write about Judge Dredd ever again, but he would uh, put something in about uh that he, I don't think he'd ever done before, which was talking about the comics of the 1970s and what he was working on and how he was working and things. So it takes some of the creators uh, have an opportunity to write uh, something different or get interviewed about something different about comics that's never really appeared before. So you can you can sign on to the the comic club through through the comic scene website as well, and and you can show your your support that way. But I think for for, for us, the best thing to do is is start with Kickstarter first. If you've never done it before, the current one, you've got a chance to to get the first four books as well as the current four books, and um, and then sign up to the comic club after it once you've had a chance to see maybe four of the books, and if you like what you you see and uh, and 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 we're getting a lot of good feedback on it um then then sign up to the comic club because that's that'll be a cheaper way to get the books and they are fantastic and as you say lovely looking um books one per year coming out as you say non-chronological order so you get to jump around in comic history and i will look in the show notes for this episode or on the website you'll find the links to the comic club and to the Kickstarter page as well, so you can get involved. Because um, they really, the, the articles are just fantastic. And each one, uh, you know, the four I've had so far has been um, very enjoyable to read, well worth uh, the time and effort that you've put into them, because they're fantastic. No, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with them. And, and interestingly, the, the fellow who does the... Um, the introduction we do a, a section at the front which is the history uh, about the culture uh, and comic uh, culture of the time that was happening in the particular year and comics so you know what films were out um, what historical events were happening how did that influence comics uh, and that's written by a guy called john mcshane who who ran aka books and comics and and that's where i would have picked up my first issue of, of swamp thing oh, so, right. <laughs> uh, so uh it, it ties in all very nicely with what we're talking about today fantastic yes linking it back to swamp thing again everything yeah. comes back to swamp thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> and tony recently you've also tried that that sort of challenge for these covid times of a digital convention on facebook tell us about the i love comics event that you organized yeah so when we were when we were doing some of the initial work on the history of comics we we um we did a survey to ask people what were the top 20 favorite comics. And we also did one on what your top um, comic characters were. And the idea behind that was we would find out what people uh, uh, enjoyed and then we could feature those in future editions of the history of comics. So I had this huge list of over a thousand votes about people's favorite comic character uh, of all time. Uh, in the in the UK, US, in worldwide comics, and I was sort of sitting there going, mm, right, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to plonk this on the website. You know, here's your first ten, here's your next ten, here's your next ten, and um, and then I thought, actually, maybe we could do something a little bit different. Um, and I'd seen people um, do online conventions throughout the year. And they'd done it in all sorts of different ways, uh, sort of trying to 
emulate that feeling of, of, of going to a comic convention and some are very good uh, uh, and some amazing stuff on, on it and I thought well yeah, you know, you've got to do a lot of work on that. So uh, I, I thought, but I want to present the, these characters uh, in in a way. And and the idea came to me was to, over a weekend, uh, share them sort of every half hour on Facebook uh, from forty to to number one, and in between time, uh, give people an opportunity to promote themselves and uh, what they were doing. Um, digitally uh, uh, all the year round um, uh, so that might be podcasts like yourself um, or you know uh, some of the kickstarters that people were already uh, running or some people might produce uh, electronic versions of their co- comics or, or or whatever and I so I just put a call out to people and said well this is what I'm I'm thinking of doing um, uh, would you be interested in, in contributing? And and some people said said yes. Um, and then I sort of ended up linking people to other people, and uh, coming up with different ways that was more com- well, that was comfortable to them to present the, their information. And uh, we managed to also get a few interviews and and uh, uh, panels and things like that uh, during the whole thing. So uh, and then just ran it over the weekend and people could just uh, drop in or or at any time and, and catch up on what what we've been doing and then we put it on the website after we'd we'd finished uh, on Facebook over the weekend so um, it was kind of thrown together to sort of uh, present this top 40 characters and and people were very good with it and uh, with their time uh, to contribute something and there's there's a few little nuggets in there that I think you yourself were were involved with with interviews with Julia Round, who wrote the Misty book, and I think we got quite an exclusive with uh, John M. Burns doing a, a sort of telephone interview because uh, he's not known for doing things like podcasts and stuff like that. So, yeah, it went it went reasonably well. I think it was good fun. It was great fun, and you also, I mean, as well as me getting a chance to speak to John M. Burns, you had a Pat Mills panel as well in there, didn't you? Yeah, I mean. Uh, Pat used to write for a comic scene and um, he was introduced to me by uh, uh, John McShane at the, the, the time and he's obviously been doing Space Warp and we never got a real chance to speak about that in the magazine because the magazine ended um, as, as Space Warp came out. So, yeah, I'd, I'd seen that he'd done a, a panel, I think a, 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 a Facebook sort of Q&A uh, and I thought, well, it might be quite good to do something like that. So, yeah, he came on and we did a we did a Zoom and invited people to to watch that. And there was another one where um, uh, there was another session where Kirstjen Moore did his, uh, you know, show people that he him drawing. And David Broughton launched a sort of a him um, drawing uh, his Shaman Kane character, which appears in the comic scene annual. And so he had different things throughout the whole the whole different day. So yeah, it was really good. And people can still find these resources on the Facebook page, the Comic Scene Community, and you say it's on your website as well. Yeah, so so we put it all, we put we listed then all the forty characters, and in between the characters, you can watch all the different videos that I was able to retrieve or podcasts 
um, that are, are links, uh, such as the, the ones that you did with Julia and, and John. Fantastic. Uh, and is that something that you think the, the I Love Comics, is that an event you might repeat in the future? I mean, it, I'm, I guess it's an awful lot of work, but is it something that might happen again? Um, it's probably not something that will will happen again in the in the in the near future. I think we'll just concentrate a little bit on on what we're doing now. It was really just an opportunity during COVID, and and also uh, with the fact that we had the forty all time greatest characters, just a, a, a way to to show that. Um, but it was it was quite nice to bring as many people together as we possibly could to do something together and promote what was happening digitally uh, about comics to certainly the comic scene audience um, who perhaps had never listened to your podcast or had, had, had never uh, seen this particular artist or hadn't heard of Space Warp or stuff. It was just a good way of being able to, to promote comics, I suppose, and uh, using a platform like Facebook that everyone was familiar with. Fantastic. So head over to comicscene.org uh, or follow the links in the show notes to get on board the History of uh, Comics project uh, or the Kickstarter. It's fantastic. So, Tony, thank you as ever for giving up your time to come on and talk about some Swamp no, Thing. thank you. I can always talk about Swamp Thing. <laughs> Such a great comic run. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to talk about the, the second volume next time in a couple of years' time. Okay. Yeah, it's been two years since we lasted it, yeah. And thank you to everyone for listening to Megacity Book Club. As ever, we are at megacitybookclub.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, and the 2080 forums. And get in touch by emailing me, mcbcpodcast at gmail.com, if you've got a book you'd like to come on the podcast and talk about. Uh, and also check out all of Tony's links, which will be in the show notes today as well. So until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, it's uh, goodbye from me and from Tony. Goodbye. Thanks very much. Wow.